My headache won't go away. I get blurry vision. My balance is awful. I'm exhausted. We can all get these symptoms from time to time. But if you or a loved one notice you're getting a combination of them regularly, don't ignore it. They could be signs of a brain tumour. My headache won't go away. I get blurry vision. My balance is awful. I'm exhausted. To learn more about the common signs of a brain tumour, search Better Safe Than Tumour. Welcome to Let's Talk About Brain Tumours, the podcast where we'll be talking to people who've been affected by a brain tumour diagnosis, either their own diagnosis or the diagnosis of a loved one. We'll also be sharing news and updates from the Brain Tumour Charity about what we're doing to halve the harm and double survival. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah and in this episode I'm going to be joined by Sarah Chalice. Sarah's going to be my co-host on episodes where we'll be talking to carers and loved ones of people diagnosed with a brain tumour. Sarah herself became her husband Neil's carer after he received a brain tumour diagnosis. So I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to introduce you to Sarah so she can tell you in her own words about her story of caring for her husband Neil. So welcome to the podcast Sarah. Hey thank you very much and thanks for inviting me Sarah as well to share my story and I've got some tips and things that helped me whilst I was caring for my husband for many years who had a brain tumour. Um, so yes, I'm going to take you back. It's about nearly 20 years ago now. How old am I? Anyway, so going back, I, I grew up in Peterborough and I 20 years ago, I came to live and work in London. And imagine the scene. I am on the 26th floor of the NatWest Tower with huge views overlooking the city. This is where my life was going to start. I'm a part of the design team for a large corporate and I've only been there three days and I'm sat there in the office just tapping away, looking through the brand guidelines. When I look up and there he is, Neil, he's six foot four, size and stature of a rugby player, cheeky smile. And he's the print supplier to our design team. And he's brought us all in wine for Christmas. You're right there, Sarah. got a little something you might like. I'm after my own heart. Every now and again, he'd take us all out, a little design team of four girls out for lunch. And I always enjoyed his company. Neil was lovely. But oozed confidence. He was even captain of Hampstead Rugby Club. Anyway, a little while later, he asked me out and we start dating, having a great time. And it had only been a number of few weeks when he told me that he thought that I was the one. I thought, Neil, I've not been in London long, but I do remember the time that we were driving over Tower Bridge together. And I love Tower Bridge. It's very special to me. And as we did, I just gazed across at Neil and said, you know what? I could spend the rest of my life with you. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Neil looked back at me and I could spend the rest of my life with you. And when we got off of the Tower Bridge, we were on this journey together. But during this time, Neil had been having kind of 20 pins and needles down his side. And he'd been going on for a while and he'd been going to the doctor who said, oh, here's some cranial relaxants of all things. And then there was one evening I came home from work. Neil was on the sofa and he just couldn't get up. He was slurring his speech. I ended up calling an ambulance and got him in. Within a few hours, they'd given all sorts of blood tests, etc. They put him on a saline drip and he was up chatting, happy. And they just gave him a couple of headache tablets to send him home. And even then I found it a little bit strange. Really? A couple of headache tablets? Bizarre. So anyway, late in that night, we came home and went to bed. Next morning, I went off to work, bleary-eyed because it had been a long night. 
But by the time I come home, when Neil tried to answer the front door at that time, because it was so early in our relationship, only six weeks, that I didn't even have a front door key. When he tried to answer the door, he, he was grey and ashen and he, he needs to collapse almost onto the sofa. I went, oh, I'm going to call another ambulance. And so that was it. Got Neil into A&E and I said to them, I'm not bringing him home this night tonight. I said, you need to see what's going on with him. So he was on the observatory ward that evening and I went home and the following morning I got a call from the hospital and they said, please, can you come in? They've done a brain scan. And I was like, brain scan, really? Okay, so I turned up and on a ward of six men, there was Neil, he was sat up, smiling, he looked pretty good. And I'd only been there five minutes, gave him a big hug when the doctor came, pulled the curtain round our uh, his bed and said and he had Neil's file and he said I'm sorry to say but we've found something on the brain scan mm. it looks like it's either a brain tumor or brain cancer and myself and Neil was so shocked because he'd been so fit and well up to that point he hadn't even been to the doctors in 14 years and when I hugged him you know we both had tears and I said you know what Neil I'm here for you you know just get better so anyway, he had six, he had like a six-hour operation to remove most of that debulking. It was like glioblastoma. And then he had chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And I do remember when he got home, it's actually where I'm sat now at this desk. He was then Googling, of course, brain tumors, as you do. And uh, he called out to me. I was in the front room. Sarah, 18 months, if I'm lucky. And I just thought, oh, hold on, Neil. And I just put my arms around him. I said, you know what? That statistic right now is other people. And right here and now, it is not you. Was there ever a point when you just thought, I need to get out of this? This is too much. Six weeks in and you're hearing this. Did you Did you no, kind I, of think? I'll be honest with you. I, I'd known him for like 18 months. Um, and, and, and then he started. He, he'd been trying to ask me. He'd been asking me out for about six months. But I, I just get, no, no, I'm too busy having a good time. <laughs> no it's kind of weird when I think back I just said no it's all it's all good don't worry just get better just get better so by by six months had gone you know the from being diagnosed and having the treatment he was given the all clear and Mm -hmm. I said great we can just get back on with life again and so Neil was in remission for a year and by the following Christmas he proposed to me and we look forward to getting married didn't really think about you know doing it quite quickly you know I, I never I'm, I'm never in much rush um, but only a few weeks after Neil proposed he was having those funny side effects again pulled, brought his scan forward and unfortunately his um, hunch was sadly right and they couldn't operate this time the tumor was back and he did say to me here in the house he said you know you don't have to marry me wow. I mean, he saw me as the one and I said stuff the cancer Neil we will make the most of what we have. Yeah. So I was in love with this man and we were in, we were kind of in it together. I was sharing it with him, you know, taking him to hospital, being there for him. So what we did was we brought the wedding forward and we saw it as a, a great celebration with all our friends and family, which was, was a terrific day. But Neil had five more years of chemotherapy and it was the timosolamide and orenotecan that he was taking and he kind of seemed to get quite at first he was sick but he kind of his body seemed to adjust it kind of got used to that chemo um, and I'd be there with him every week at Charing Cross Hospital and we met some really great friends we'd all hang out together uh, I call them the, the BT friends actually kind of brain <laughs> 
and you know still good friends today some of those and um as as it carried on Neil was then having falls at, at one time he had four quite sizable tumors in his head it's amazing wow. he lasted for as long as he did actually so <laughs> where they were you, you know, it was one at the base of the, the brain. He was then having falls because of where it was. Right. And then when we were starting to use a wheelchair, I gave up my job to look after him full time. And I wanted to spend quality time with him. I didn't know how long Neil had. It was quite a big decision, though, because you'd come to London to start this career. And this was the yeah. start of your life. And then suddenly you're yeah. giving up your career, the whole reason that you'd moved. It was a combination, I'm going to be honest with you, Sarah. I, I got a bit fed up with the corporate world I will say this so it was a combination for me I wanted to work for myself I wanted to carry on doing graphic design but be a freelance designer which is what I did from here in the house but then I could keep my eye on Neil as well he had long days of just spending time alone and I thought that was quite sad as well not knowing maybe how long he had Mm -hmm. and I wanted to spend quality time with him really <laughs> it's like five years in is this sort of like sort of five seven seven years in yeah something like that yeah so six seven years in I, I would say kind of knowing him and stuff so yeah being at home and then organizing the paid carers as well because Neil was um big heavy guy so like 16 17 stone it's like twice my size as well so when he was having falls I was trying to pick him up off the floor. It was dangerous for me as well. And then a few years after that, because he was slowly deteriorating because of where the tumours and the scar tissue was, a few years after that, he then ended up with having a stroke and he ended up in hospital for a couple of months. And he was really bad by then. He couldn't speak. He had a feeding tube. And they just kept saying, is it do not resuscitate? You know, he wasn't a vegetable, but he was quite out of it. Um, so there's not much communication, but you could do a thumbs up, a bit of chocolate brownie. So that was all. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I said, send him home. I want him at home. I don't want any, I don't want him dying in here. That's how I saw it. But I'm going to be yeah. honest with you. Once I got him home and he was in a hospital bed in our living room, he clearly visibly got better. He was better. And he actually lasted another four years. Wow. And at that time, if you'd have asked me how long do you think? A couple of weeks? Months? Really? But, you know, um, I also, whilst we were here facing all of this, I remember giving a talk at the Houses of Parliament helping the Brain Tumor Charity and a neurosurgeon got up and he said he was often asked what was the best criteria for surviving a brain tumor. Well, I stood there and I just thought, oh, it must be tumazolamide or whatever. But his answer surprised us all. He said the best criteria for surviving a brain tumor was marital status. Really? And that was really quite surprising. And I absolutely love that. And I don't think you have to actually really be married. But I think if you've mm-hmm. fallen seriously ill and you've got somebody fighting your corner, um, showing you love and support, being a pillar of strength, that is a huge boost. Mm-hmm. But not only that, if you've fallen ill, you still have a reason to live the yeah. love of another. And love is so key when it comes to caring, as frustrating as caring can be, I know. What do you think, because obviously at that point then, Neil's very much dependent on you. It sounds like he physically was very dependent on you as well as emotionally. Because like you said, he's this big six foot four guy and now you're 
having to do all of his personal care I'm assuming yes it was 24 7 nursing care with paid carers coming in helping me I called it the chalice crane the the hoist you know you've got to have a bit of a tongue in joke on you know a bit with all of these sort of things but yeah it was me and the paid carers coming in helping me to get him up and I'd have a baby monitor on at night because he'd have choking fits due to where one of his tumors was I think so I'd be darting downstairs always had one ear out just in case so Mm -hmm. that's why carers don't really get great sleep because you always you're on call wherever you are whatever you're doing just in case I know it was just tough when it's for years and I, I you know it was a tragedy for both of us because Neil was kind of slowly losing his life but in the process I felt like I was losing mine mm-hmm. and I kind of describe it like this although Neil was the one with the brain tumor as a carer I was waking up to brain cancer every day 14 years which is, you know, people, you know, even close friends and family don't really understand what it is that you are going through. A long time, isn't it? Because it sounds like he was in pretty much treatment the entire time of that, that even though he had that period of remission, he was pretty much in some sort of treatment throughout all of your relationship. Yes. Um, It wasn't until then he'd had the stroke he was kind of palliative care so there's not much more they could do but I do want to share this story there's a few things we did I, I we got gay got Neil on clomipramine uh, an anecdotal trial through the brain tumor charity and it's been shown to help to uh, reduce brain tumors so so do check that out as a first and I had Neil on Neil and I was giving that to him all the way through actually and I think that helped um, but also I, I do want to share this story and when Neil was had had the stroke. I mean, he was kind of almost slumped in a wheelchair when I got him when I take him out. And I thought, oh, that's kind of it. You know, he could get one time because he couldn't, when he had his head in, in bed, it would just be looking in one direction, even though the TV was over there. It's like, Neil, TV's here, you know, trying to get him to look. And uh, and then a friend of mine told me about a uh, homeopath, of all things, uh, down the road, Dr. Innes in St. Margaret's. And she said, you know, he was a trained proper GP, but then he ended up with some kind of growth and he, on his head and Western medicine wasn't fixing it. So he ended up putting a, an advert in the back of a medical journal and said, please help. And people were saying all these alternative therapies, also uh, homeopathy. And I thought, oh, great. OK, so I took, wheeled nearly into his office and we were in there like two hours and he wanted to oh, he wanted to know everything. You know, it wasn't just, oh, it's a brain tumor. It's like, well, what's led up to that point? Mm-hmm. Which is, it's like the full story of a person. You know, it's not just the illness. And then he prescribed Neil. It was called Cytosine B, C-Y-T-O-Z-Y-M-E. I like the way you can spell it. <laughs> yeah, well, like, it's gone run through my head because it was so, mm-hmm. so at the end of the day, you can take it. All it is is a food supplement. It's condensed lamb's brain of all things. That's disgusting. And, yeah. <laughs> and I had to kind of water it down and put this milky fluid through his, his tube delicious we were going to go back because it's quite pricey the, to, to see Dr Innes but within like five weeks nothing had really changed with Neil and I thought well I'll, I'll just cancel it but I'd say five and a half weeks in and I, that was the only thing that had changed it was like something had healed in his brain so there was one morning I came downstairs and usually I'd go in his living room where his bedroom was and say morning chicken of course, I wouldn't hear anything. He'd just be laying there with his eyes blinking and looking around. But that morning, he swiveled his whole head. And this hadn't happened for months. And he swiveled his whole head and went, don't call me chicken. Which <laughs> <She> was <laughs> shocking. It was like he was back from the dead. I, was, I nearly fell over. I said, oh, my God, Neil, you look 
amazing. Do you do you feel alert? Because you look and you went, yes. And he was talking, and that must have been the only thing. And of course, it's just a food supplement. So it's something I did want to to share because no stone unturned. Don't give up hope. Just keep keep looking. See what other people are utilizing. And and another thing that I would like to say is, you know, Neil. He could breathe in a packet of chocolate hobnobs. I mean, he was a shocker with the biscuits. He was my little biscuit munching. But, you know, when it came to, and of course, you want a bit of what you fancy. And it's one of the last pleasures, isn't it? Sitting and eating yeah. something naughty. But they never talked about sugar. You know, it creates more inflammation in the body. And we know about that, about refined sugar. But, our, you know, Neil's oncologist specialists, they never talked about nutrition. And I think it is something that's really important. I used to... Um, juice for Neil I used to call it the purple-headed nasty sorry that's what I called it because it always had beetroot juice in it because it has micronutrients in it for the brain so poor old Neil there would be times I'll bring up half a pint of this blinking <laughs> broccoli in it broccoli juice and then apples and stuff so it sweetened it and he'd look at he'd be laying in bed and he'd go oh god this is why I've got one of them Glug it with a purple moustache. Honestly, it's quite boring when I think back. But I think all these things add up to helping to make him as well as possible, really. And what was it like for you as a carer? Because, like you said, you talked about giving up your job, but presumably there was a lot more of your life. Did you see your friends and look at them and think how different your life was? I have some really good friends and still you really get to know who your friends are is all I can say to Sarah, you know, when you're caring, because not everybody has that empathy and that compassion mm-hmm. that you need. Some of my friends were, were not so good. So your support network is key. And for me, and I, I, I can hope my heart goes out to all those out there who are caring at the moment, care for your loved ones with hope with a brain tumor, because, you know, with the pandemic as well, caring can be quite isolating at the best of times, but even with, particular day centers for example not being able to see family as much shielding a vulnerable loved one mm-hmm. it's really hard it's hard at the best of times and for me my world became a much smaller place and friends and that you'd see on Facebook you know how they were getting on but yeah it for me it was quite monotonous it was response mode constantly being there for him as carers do and also you feel like you're grieving because I felt mm-hmm. I was grieving grieving for the loss of I couldn't have a chat with Neil like I normally did, you know, go out and, you know, do what we wanted to do. Mm. That was over. Just constantly tending to him and grieving for what was going to be eventually happening, really. Mm. And it could be, and you know, the amount of times I got getting Neil to hospital, something else happened. And I think, oh, this is it. And then it wasn't it. And I think, my God, he's messing with my mind because <laughs> it really was yeah. I've been through snot bubbles in A&E and, you know, Neil's gone off and they've scanned him again. And they're like, you're all right. I'm like, oh, yes, just the same old, you know, the usual, you know, you've got, you've got ups and downs. And then, they, oh, no, he's OK. You know, send him home. How do you manage that? Because that emotional roller coaster of mm. you're going from the monotony of caring for somebody every day. It's like walking through treacle. And then you have these moments of crisis where you're emotionally all over the place and then presumably then you end up back in that monotony again and you're just waiting for the next kind of crisis you you do and you you know that it's something's going to happen probably something's going to turn up and so you're in that response mode that fight or flight mode and that's what I was and that's why so many of us end up falling ill from caring because you're constantly you know in that stress mode and worrying mode and and for me 
when you are in that in, in that kind of mode for, for years, for me, you know, it depletes your immune system. That's why it's so important to have self-care, self-love, taking time for yourself. Of course, then you feel guilty when you do. You, how dare I go out and have a jolly when Neil's stuck back here with the paid carer? Um, and for what most of us do, which is what happened for me, is I was suppressing my emotions. I wasn't thinking about me at all and I couldn't deal with what whatever I was going on I was too busy focusing on Neil but that stress just depleted me and I ended up with a horrendous chest infection I fell ill a number of times over those years but I had this chest infection that didn't leave me for months and then I ended up of all things I had MRSA infection in both ears oh my god yes I'm amazed I'm still alive as well yeah and I'd have to put pink gloop on me in the shower every every morning to try and kill off this MRSA and of course I've been hugging Neil and obviously stuck fingers in my ears at some stage and and caught whatever it it had done so then Neil and I were both going back and forth from hospital I I was struggling to cope but at the time I thought I was coping but really yeah and if you and this is the thing we all put on a brave face we're all guilty of it and I did as well so if you saw me on Facebook, well, I always had a drink in my hand, smiling, you know, who wants to know what the hell's going on back here? And that's, that's how it was. I, and I did love a drink and that was my distraction. And a lot of us as carers, we do things to distract ourselves, whatever it might, might be food, might be drink. And, you know, I'd have a glass or a bottle of an evening of Prosecco. And if I get out of an evening, I really would drink my body weight and fits. Really? I've got Polish genes. Yeah, I, I can drink. <laughs> how did you, I was going to say, how did you cope with the hangover the next day of then having to go back to full-on care mode? I don't know. Yeah, I did. But I, I didn't happen that often, to be honest. <laughs> so it was a being able to get out. But it was that kind of release. And we do need that release, you know. Yeah. So just get out, do whatever it is you need to do so that, you you know, you can feel better, dance, whatever. Don't feel guilty about it. It's your life too. It is the guilt, isn't it, though, that people yeah. do feel that massive guilt, how, you know, I shouldn't be going out or, and that worry of, because you almost get to that point, don't you, where no one can care for them as well as you can, you know. No, you have, a, no, you have an advanced level of caring. Nobody's going to yeah. know. I mean, when Neil wasn't able to speak anymore, I knew exactly what he wanted and how he liked it, you know. I'd been trained up, do you know what I mean? So <laughs> leaving him in respite, say, for example, in the local hospice was, I felt terrible. I felt guilty. And I did turn respite down and many carers do turn it down. But when I fell ill and, and I was desperately asking Julia, the head nurse at the local hospice, I said, please, you know, can you, can you, she said, no, it's booked up for another three, four months. She said, it's too late when you've fallen ill. Carers need regular breaks. And that's when I learned my lesson, Sarah. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's like if you, a lot of people are offered it, they don't take it, then they then they reach burnout. They've completely like depleted themselves, yeah. and then they're desperate for it, and then they're asking for it. And like you said, by then it's you, it's too late. You can't get somebody in at that moment. Yeah. You're in that point where you've got to plan those respites. Then even if you're feeling like I think I'm all right, I don't think I need it. Take that opportunity when it comes, even if you don't think at that point where you need a break you probably do 
You do. And look, I mean, when I think back, I thought I was coping. And I, when I had fallen ill, you know, as even Stuart, who was uh, at our local neuro charity, he said, oh, you look dreadful then. I said, thanks. Why don't you come and tell me? <laughs> so I, didn't really, I didn't really know you back then. But I thought at the time I was coping. And that is why I, I, I do say to carers in my book and my course, you know, check in with yourself mm. regularly. And for me, well, after I'd fallen ill, I ended up, Neil ended up in a nursing home for a few weeks I went off on a silent retreat of all things and managed to shut up and I re- getting into the outside space with great quote helps to get deal with the inside mm-hmm. space so getting away from the situation at home whatever's going on it gives you time to reflect and have peace and go oh yeah I can't. now I realized I felt anger frustration from certain family who were busy judging me I've got a smile on my face on Facebook, of course. You'll remember that. And, and that's probably what it was. Mm. You know, she's going out having a laugh while he's stuck in a hospital bed. That's not how it was at all. But that's what people see. And that's yeah. what you've got a smile. Did you ever feel angry at Neil? No. Um, when Neil became incontinent, not everybody falls incontinent, of course, with, with a brain tumour, but he became incontinent like overnight. And I was I would describe myself as a little bit of a shouty wife. <laughs> I, I didn't sign up for that you know you know you know such a big man decides to go to the toilet in his trousers I'm I just really I let's not go there anyway I'd be shouty and poor old Neil and he listened to my tirade and at the beginning just going to be honest but then I would always apologize afterwards I said I am so sorry Neil I'm just exasperated of what's happening. It's not you. Mm. It's actually the situation. And I would give him a hug and I would say sorry. I mean, look, we don't know how we're going to behave or no. do it you get slapped in the face with it. How did he react? Because obviously there's a point where he, like you said, he was non, you know, non-verbal. But were there points where he became angry, frustrated by the situation? And depressed, of course. I, I fully understand. I think any of us would be. You, you're not going to not be depressed and you're going through that. For a long time, Neil didn't speak, wasn't able to speak. And then one day as I was feeding him chocolate mousse in his bed, sat up in the living room, he, kept, he blurted out three words. Were they love? I love you? No. He said, I hate you. And I was really shocked. And then his eyes went really wide because he couldn't say anything else. But I I said, Neil, have you got any idea what I do for you? Because I, you know, hug him, tell him I love him every day. He couldn't say anything else. You know, suddenly he's got an angry wife as well as a (laughs) (laughs) But I I got really upset when I went upstairs to bed that night. I cried in bed. And then I then I realized, you know, Sarah, I said, you know what? Neil doesn't love himself and he's in a very dark place. What makes Mm -hmm. you think he's gonna go, oh hey, love you too, you know. He's in a very dark place. And he might have even been trying to push me away because mm-hmm. he could see at times how I was and how I was feeling. And I don't think he hated me at all. And when I came downstairs the next day, I said to him, hey, look, you know, I love you and I always will. And from that point, I recognized that it was unconditional love. Mm-hmm. Very powerful, actually. Uh, it's through these horribly tough challenges that we actually learn. Uh, otherwise, you don't learn anything, do we? I'd just still be working in the city drinking gallons of red wine, basically. <laughs> you know all these things. Um, exactly. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know these things. And I, it was unconditional love for Neil right up and, and until the end. And once Neil came home from that nursing home, I, it took me it took me some months to actually recover. I'd been mentally and and, and physically unwell for quite a long time. Actually, I, I recognised. And with that. 
I made sure that I was okay. I, I recognized care for Neil, but care for myself. Mm-hmm. And if I could get out, I'd get out and not feel guilty. I needed to make sure I was okay. And You've been caring for a long time at that point to, to reach that decision. That had been years that you'd kind of been in it, really living it before you finally had that kind of like almost epiphany of I need to look after myself. It was. You know what? I wasn't even last on the list. I wasn't even on the list. Mm. That's how I would describe it. I think that's for most of us who are caring. You're too busy in crisis mode, dealing with everything. And then you're, you're in that response mode. So anybody else needing anything, wanting anything, you're like, like putting the um, oxygen mask on them as well. You, who else needs rescuing? And I noticed that with a lot of carers that I, I speak to. They're all trying to rescue everybody else. No, stop. You can't rescue everybody. I know we've got some people who've cared for all sorts of people throughout the family. Yeah. Um, you know, that's not your journey. You, you don't need to rescue everybody. Mm. Also be there for you because this is your life as well. You know, you need to find enjoyment and, and actually in filling yourself up, as I found that I needed to do. I then had more to give, Neil weirdly in being say self-care is not selfish but doing the things that I needed having that regular breaks even in the day you know 10 minutes near half an hour there making sure I was okay I was then able to make better decisions for all of us concerned yeah instead of that knee-jerk reaction or you know bumping yourself because you're tired and you know snapping at somebody because you don't feel good you know, you've got to look after yourself. Yeah. You have no choice. Absolutely. And obviously, at some point, you had to face the fact that Neil wasn't going to get better. But like you sort of said, you know, there was that thing where he had lots of times where you thought he's not going to make it, he's not going to make it. But there was a point where you obviously came to the point where he really isn't going to make it. Um, yes. And it, and it was the day was Neil loved his rugby. And we actually went to Twickenham Stadium of all places. And it was England against Ireland just for the World Cup. It was lovely. I had my mum and dad here. They never came to the rugby, but we had weirdly had two spare tickets and said, you need to come. It's all been done up for the World Cup. Anyway, so we'll kneel down along with a load of friends around us. We all went up there together, not knowing it was Neil's last time. He had a sip of Bollinger. You know, if you're going to drink the last thing that you so, yeah, the last thing would be champagne, surely. Uh, and when I got him home to hoist him into bed, he literally threw up and wet himself actually and he was having a stroke and I, I didn't know I, I just didn't realize that's what was happening and um later into the evening he he didn't seem right he was kind of seemed asleep and when I tried to clean out his mouth he bit my finger and I knew that something wasn't right so I called an ambulance and mum said oh shall I shall I come oh you know it'll be hours we'll be home in no time you know as you do but my mum still came with me and when they scanned him at the hospital late that night, it's like one, two in the morning, they said, I'm, I'm afraid he's having a stroke. He's dying. And um, I actually said, what, now? Because it'd be, I'd be, it was just, it sound very empathetic for me. <laughs> it'd been happening so often yeah. now. And honestly, if we snot bubbles and tears that I, you know, and, and it'd been a late night and I'd had a few drinks. So I was like, what, now? And they said, it could be a few days. I went, really? Okay. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm not leaving his side. But actually, Neil passed away an hour and a half later. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was that quick. And I'm glad it it was, actually. Mm -hmm. And I had my arms around him. And I actually said thank you when he passed. Because Mm -hmm. I said thank you for him being in my life. 
But I was thankful that he wasn't going to be suffering anymore because we both compassion means to suffer with. Mm-hmm. And we'd both been suffering for an extremely long time. And life isn't about, you know, life is about making the most. And you can't live from a hospital bed like that as he was for so long. What was that like to suddenly go home and know that it was after all of that? I mean, that's a massive part of your life. Yeah. And every single day, this is what you're doing. Yeah. This is your entire life. And then all of a sudden it's it's gone. Yes. Um, it was my, it was because I, I devoted my life to it in the end. I was a trustee for a neuro charity down the road in Twickenham here, INS. You know, I was, everything was to do with caring and looking after Neil. And in a split second, I describe it that I could sit down. In that first week when I got home, I I said I could sit down. And it meant I was not responsible for somebody else's life. That's how I felt. And I just sat down for a week. And it was beautiful sunshine. Four days later, it was Neil's birthday. Oh, wow. And me and mum had a glass of champagne to celebrate it. And I tell you what I also did. I knew because of the research and how important this is for us all, I did put it, put out there to make sure that they donate, we donated Neil's brain um, because I knew it was only, it's limited time before they can you, you yeah. take the brain. It's not, it's not something nice, you know. Was it something that was it you discussed with Neil or was it something that you just made that decision that, that you thought it was? It was combo. I think Neil would have said yes. At the time, I remember going to Holborn to Lincoln's Infield and one of the doctors there, um, he showed us a whole load of things. He said, so rare that people do donate the brains. And Neil had been quite special where He'd had tumours come and go, glioblastomas, and he'd done amazingly well. And I thought, you know, if there's anything in there, it just seems crazy just to allow it to just break, really. And Neil's gone. You know, he's not in that body anymore that's not working for him. So I I think Neil would have wanted that anyway. And I remember Neil being impressed with the research and the chromosomes they were looking at, and um, and more needs to be done. It wasn't the easiest, I'll be honest with you, Sarah, you know, on his birthday that's when they took his brain really yeah it's weird how things happen but you know at the end of the day he was the rest of him was going to the crematoriums and got to remember Neil's not in that body anymore not working for him he's been released from his body Mm. and actually I will say this the whole end of life thing you know in that last summer of Neil's life he he wasn't good he's quite grim and a you know, not in a good place. And so I read to him Anita Morjani's book, Dying to Be Me, where she had this huge NDE, near-death experience, and she was end-stage cancer. And while she was in a coma, she had an out-of-body experience. So this is the, the chapter. I just read this one chapter to him. But when she came out of her body, she felt all this unconditional love. And her dad was there who passed and her best friend who passed. And they said, it's not your time yet. And she said, well, I'm not going back to live like that. <laughs> and, and understandably, but she realised it was fear that had made her so very ill. So she agreed to come back and she woke up and she, it was pretty much gone in about three weeks. She had tumours the size of lemons. Wow. And this is a true story. Is this something? Yeah, it's all documentary. All wow. documentary. So it's Anita Morjani. And I've met her and I've been to a number of her talks. She's absolutely amazing. And I read this chapter to Neil and I said at the end of it, I said, so you see, Neil, you don't really die. You actually get released from your body. You're, you are spirit. Mm-hmm. You'll feel all this unconditional love. 
And you'll wonder why you hadn't gone years ago. I said, did you enjoy that? And his thumb went up that quick. Really? And five days later, he was gone. Wow. So it gave Neil, I think he was holding on. And I think it gave Neil permission to go, mm-hmm. which is very powerful, actually. So uh, we all have to go at some stage. All of us, you're not here forever. And in knowing that, and I've done a lot more meditation and things like that, in going deeper on all of this on mm-hmm. a, a spiritual side of things, it's, it's fascinating. There's a lot more to life than us just being kind of meat suits dragging our knuckles across the earth. <laughs> we are, there's a lot more to us. And yeah, I've learned a lot, you know, about life and, and everything. But I, will, I do want to say this, Sarah, as well. I know a number of, of carers who are now long-term sick due, and they believe from the stress and the burden of caring for all those years. These were particularly um, people like caring for somebody with Parkinson's. So one lady I knew, she, um, she'd been caring for years and only three days after his funeral, she was diagnosed with cancer. And another friend, actually, she was diagnosed only eight weeks after her husband who had a brain tumour. She was then in a wheelchair and their son was caring for her. And it's like a ripple effect of illness. So I cannot stress enough how important it is to look after you. Yeah. Do a project to you, as I would describe it as well. Okay. You know, if you're feeling low, you're feeling drained, which I'm sure you probably are with the pandemic and everything as well. It's been another layer of stress. Project you, just, you know, through the days that like when you get up, what could you do? You know, I do a bit of rolling around, do a bit of yoga on the living room <laughs> carpet, the dog looking on. Uh, I do a bit of energy, you know, just simple like Tai Chi or Qigong. You can, you can do it in 10 minutes, you know. Did you do that sort of stuff while Neil was ill or is this the something you've done now since it's sort of looked back? I think I should have been doing more of this. I should have really been. Sometimes I should have done more of it, I think. I, I knew it already, so a, a lot of it, doing the yoga. And then, of course, you get out of it. And then you, it's, it's for a lot of us who were caring, you, got, you, you have a lot of uh, stress in the shoulders. You're holding burden and our back will snap or whatever. So you just do something simple, but it's all tight. So notice that. Notice if your back's feeling tight. Do some simple, you know, relaxation uh, exercises, yoga, qigong. Really get yourself body moving. But nice and calm, you know, don't do yourself in with it either, trying to do Ashtanga yoga, or whatever, <laughs> whatever those are, just simple, you know, and breathing, taking long, deep breath all the way down into the body and feel right into your gut and then almost imagine like dirty air coming out and breathing in peace and calm, long, deep breaths. We do shallow breathe, all of us, taking those long, deep breaths and really feeling into the body because... I really did suppress a lot of emotions. We all do it and then putting on this brave face. So look at breathing techniques, just simple things you can do throughout the day or just go, right, this half an hour from three till four or whatever, I know I can have time out. Don't then go and start hoovering up. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. That's what I always be doing. Go, right, what can I do now for me and, and really make the most of it? Um, it might be just having a chocolate biscuit and a cup of tea. Ringing a good friend. You know, a lot of us have been feeling quite isolated and distanced, all of us. Putting the feelers out and, and speaking to friends and family. Good friends, those who pick you up, not those who are complaining as well. You don't need that either. So I talk, call, it, call it taps and drains. So focus on the taps in your life and your local carer centre as well and charities in your local area. Still doing great work behind closed doors. A lot of like Richmond Carer Centre here was doing a mindfulness course online. There's all sorts of 
things going on. So put the feelers out. It took me years to find what was available in my local area. You'd be surprised. And there's more and more stuff yeah. happening for carers because it's finally getting recognized. It's taking a slow process. You know, we need more to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, uh, with the Carers UK website, it's something like up to 70% of us fall mentally or physically ill from the stress of caring. It's time for change for all of us. Be there for your loved ones, but be there for yourself. Absolutely. That's such good advice. So I think we're kind of nearing the end. It's been really, really lovely having you on. It's been great talking to you. I hope you've all found this really useful and really helpful. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. If you'd like more information, you can visit our website at thebraintumorcharity.org or email our support team at support at thebraintumorcharity.org. And finally, before you go, if you enjoyed this podcast, please can you leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so we can reach more people and raise more awareness. Tamsin and I work in the individual giving team at the Brain Tumor Charity. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you or a loved one have been diagnosed with a brain tumor and are worried about your finances, the Brain Tumor Charity's Benefits and Money Advice Clinic, run in partnership with Citizens Advice, is here to help you. Our expert advisors can help you access the financial support you're entitled to, as well as give advice on how to make the most of your money. To make an appointment with our Benefits and Money Advice Clinic, Visit our website at thebraintumorcharity.org slash money or call our support team on 0808 800 0004.